0: going on. This is Joaquin Noah, and you're listening to Chicago Bullseye.
1: The game is the Hello again everybody, welcome to a very special edition of the Chicago Bullseye. In this long, dreary season, we have a a light at the end of the tunnel with the emergence of Kobe White as a superstar and the other superstar, media superstar, the great Kevin Anderson from NBC Chicago. How you doing, my friend?
0: I'm good. I'm good. You could say that Kobe White is giving us a new hope. I could say that, right? I am
1: so excited about this episode. I can't even begin to tell you the uh, the uh, palpable excitement that has been uh, all over my emails and my Twitter account about your Top 10 Star Wars scenes. But before we get into that, there is some uh, topics at hand about the beloved bull that we'll get into briefly before we go through yeah, your top 10. So let's just start out. Kobe White, uh, the kid's exploded in the last three games off the bench. There's a lot of talk. Should this kid be starting now? Um, and, you know, pretty pretty big debate online about should he start or, you know, should we should keep him off the bench and keep his quote unquote rhythm going? What say you on this uh, controversial topic?
0: So uh, I'm in the he needs to start and should start camp. I get the counter-argument that he is getting starters minutes as a reserve and that he is closing games, which is more important than starting games. And I absolutely agree with both those points. But my main reason why I think Kobe White should be starting is that I think right now, the value in developing Kobe is developing developing him side-by-side side with Zach Levine. And I, I truly believe that he needs to play nearly every minute side-by-side side with Zach. And so if you bring him off the bench, that's essentially six minutes in the first quarter and six minutes in the third quarter that he's on the bench when Zach's on the floor. And I want to see the future of this Bulls team, which in my mind is Kobe as your starting point guard and Zach as your starting two-guard. And I want to see that develop. It's not just about the individual development of Kobe, which is certainly part of it, but I want to see that development of him running the offense with Zach. And quite frankly, the best stretches we're seeing of Kobe playing are with Zach on the floor with him. And I, I think Zach himself would tell you that having Kobe out there takes a lot of the defensive attention away from Zach. And I think that is only a good thing. And and conversely, it takes the defensive attention and pressure off of Kobe because Zach's on the floor too, and you can't just run at both of them. And I think teams can very easily, when it's only one of those two guys on, on the floor, because quite frankly, they are the only two players on this team right now that can develop their own shot and create their own shot off the dribble. And so... With that being said, it just is much better to see them play together and develop together. And we saw absolutely how bad their first quarter start was against the Thunder. Yes. What, like what what changed? Kobe came in the game, they turned things around. I believe if you start Kobe, you're not down 18 to 4, or God, whatever the the horrible start ended up being. I mean, it just doesn't happen. And so I, I think there's a lot of value in Kobe starting. I'm glad that he's getting a significant amount of fourth quarter minutes. I'm glad that he's closing, yes playing 35 minutes a night is what he needs to develop. But I, I just think there's more value in having him start and play more minutes with Zach instead of less minutes with Zach.
1: I couldn't agree more. I don't understand the, the thinking. Well, he's had a really nice rhythm going uh, for three straight games against you know subpar teams outside of the Thunder. I would counter, first of all, if, if, if he's going to suffer by entering the starting lineup, then he's not going to be all that, right? I mean, come on, what kind of argument is this? First of all, Rhythm, you ask any NBA player, they they like to start. They want to start because it promotes better rhythm. It's very difficult to warm up and then sit on the bench for 10 to 15 minutes of real time and then expect to just come off and just heat it up. And to penalize the kid for performing as a bench player is, is, is exactly what you're doing, what they did to Ben Gordon for a couple of years. Uh, I think it would be a huge mistake. Let him learn to start. That's where our future is with this core four of him, Wendell Carter Jr., Zach Levine, and, and uh, Laurie Markkinen. And I had major concerns about Kobe White and his ability to be paired with, with uh, Zach Levine. And these last three games, thank God, have really alleviated a lot of those concerns.
0: Yeah, the concern certainly with how Kobe played the first half of the season is that he was very quick to take a shot. I and mean, it didn't seem like he was uh, really running the offense. But the, the reality of that is, in the second unit, he's the only viable scorer. So who do you really want him passing to in that situation, especially given the health of this roster right now? Uh, and the other thing is that if you let him be a playmaker, he can be a playmaker. And then him and Zach together have played extremely well. And our big reason you know, it's funny about that Oklahoma City game, they, they lost that game. But it, it absolutely felt like it felt like a win. Totally. Not only because of how Kobe and Zach played, but because of the comeback. Like it was honestly the best loss of the season, uh, I think, in the way they played in that game. And like I know our friend Mark Kay is a huge proponent of keep Kobe coming off the bench. And yes, you know, certainly if he's playing against the second unit, he's going to have probably lesser quality defenders. But I think in terms of where we are in this season, it is purely about developing the young players and the players that you believe to be your core and has nothing to do with wins and losses.
1: And I want to see Kobe next to Zach. I, I agree 100%. And, frankly, Mar-K's, uh disapproval of it only strengthens our argument. You know, So let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's usually how it works, right? <laughs> exactly. Let's take the opposite of what Markay says I, and then he, it's right. I mean, you, did you
1: hear his nonsense at the end of our last show together about the Jedi suck and all this? I mean, what the? This guy's way out on an island. Uh, We don't want to
0: get into the Jedi stuff yet about Yoda, but uh, there's (laughs) certainly a conversation to be had there.
1: So, yeah, we're going to get into that in a second. Part of this is is question number two that I think goes hand-in-hand with this question about White starting, and that's are you a tanker? I'm of the belief that starting the coach's son over Otto Porter will hinder – not help the development of the core four i'm adamantly against tanking this year i understood it in past seasons but in a draft where there's no clear number one where the 14th player could potentially be as good as the first uh i I am against uh sacrificing development for losses you know so this is in my opinion we should play to win for the rest of the year and get these good players to help the development not hinder it what say you
0: yeah, I'm 100% on board with you for the uh, first thing is, is the same reason, that there is no clear superstar in this draft, uh, and you're just as likely to get a future star picking 8th or 7th. God forbid it'll probably be 7th, uh, or you're picking top 3. And the reality is, because of the lottery odds uh, flattening out, there really isn't a super greater chance of getting a top 4 pick if you are have the seventh worst lottery odds versus the tenth worst lottery odds, it's all it's all about the same. And we saw last year's draft lottery: the top three worst teams in the league, none of them picked in the top three in the draft because of that. And so, I don't feel there's really much value in having an actual tank, a intended tank. Uh, you know the and let, let's be clear: the way to truly tank is to hold players out who are healthy. And I don't see any value in that at all. Uh, as we've seen, the, the Bulls announced today that we're recording this on uh, February 27th. That Luke Cornett is, is going to be out for what essentially is the rest of the regular season. Uh, we believe Dunn is going to be out the rest of the regular season. Uh, we're hoping Wendell, uh, plays this Saturday. Uh, we have no idea what's going on with Otto Porter, but to your point about Archie starting over Otto, uh, I'll go a step further. And if we have a healthy Denzel Valentine or a healthy Otto Porter, either one of those should be absolutely starting at the small forward spot. Uh, you know, certainly include Chandler Hutchison in that mix. Uh, Archie is starting at the three, and uh, I'll correct one misconception there. Technically, with the way Boylan is throwing out his lineups, Archie is your starting point guard. And yeah. Saderanski's are starting small forward, but in in, in terms of today's small ball, um, you know you've got three guards out there at starting, uh, which is never really ideal. But no, I I agree. In terms of Archie's production, he's certainly not getting starters' minutes. A large part to do what Kobe is doing out there, uh, but I, I don't think that's the right move. I think if if Hutch, Denzel, or Otto certainly is healthy, they have to be starting at the three.
1: I agree 100%. Coach's son needs to hit the bench. He's a fine bench player, and maybe if you want to bring him in, you know, eight or nine, but starting, that's part of the reason we were down 17-4 because nobody pays attention to him. You know, his man often doubles on Zach. It's just a very, very bad scene. So part of the reason I want Kobe in the lineup, exactly how you outlined there. Do you feel – on to another topic before we get into Star Wars. This is the last topic. A lot of rumors about change happening. I think we're all in agreement it's going to happen – think we're all in agreement uh, it needs to happen however the rumors that Pax is being moved upstairs is keeping a couple fellow Bulls fans up at night uh, in my opinion I think all that matters is who is making the final decision who's making a decision on free agents on drafting uh, it seems to be working quite well with Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams why is everyone so perturbed and are you as worried about that possible move?
0: So I think the level of uh, irritation slash uh, perturbeness comes with the answer to this question. Who do they hire? The next GM of the Chicago Bulls. Does that GM answer directly to John Paxson, or does that GM answer directly to Michael Reinstorf? If mm-hmm. it is the latter, then I don't think there's anything to be concerned about. You know, if, if this GM is the one who is, has the final say on moves within basketball operations— then I am totally on board with whatever they do. Uh, certainly, Paxton has value as an advisor. He's got a lot of experience in this league. And if he, and along with Doug Collins, for instance, if this person wants to lean on them and ask them questions and take their input, I have no problem with that at all. I'm totally fine with it. It comes down to if there is a draft pick to be made, if there's a trade to be made, if there's a free agent signing to be had, who is making the decision on that if there's a disagreement. that That's ultimately all that really matters. If it's the new GM who breaks the tie, if you will, or is ultimately the one making that decision, I'm totally on board with that. But if you bring in a GM who only essentially handles the paperwork and it still packs in making the final decision, well, then there's no real value in bringing in a GM then. So I, I think ultimately that will not be... Uh, announced until after the GM is uh, hired and that first press conference is uh, is made because that question absolutely will be asked. And if the answer is that GM is answering directly to Michael Reinsdorf, I'm totally on board. You're getting a fresh fresh voice, which hopefully uh, from someone outside the organization to come in. And then uh, I'll I'll be 100% on board with with the future. So it really remains to be seen as how is that question answered in terms of how I'm going to feel and how I think the majority of Bulls fans are going to feel moving forward to this offseason.
1: Let's assume that happens. They bring in a new GM who has a final decision, and he brings back the exact same, you know, we start next year with the exact same starting lineup, Votto opts in. I think that's likely. I don't see any moves Considering There's how not
0: much roster flexibility, no. Fred, but like here, here's the reality of it. Bring in, um, you know, the best GM in the world. It, it like with this roster and with the certainly the expectation that Otto Porter is going to opt in and pick up his player option. There is not much roster flexibility at all. In terms of free agency, they would have zero cap dollars, and in true free agency, they would have money to sign a veteran free agent using the mid-level exception and they certainly would have uh, their draft pick to make to uh, add to the roster and the rotation. But there's not significant moves to be made uh, unless you feel like trading one of your
1: core. Yeah, we're yeah,
0: talking Markkinen, um Levine, Wendell, Kobe, right? Like, if you feel like trading one of those four to reset the rebuild is the right move, then that certainly would be a bold uh, decision, and that's where the significant change in your roster is going to come from if one of those four guys gets dealt, and certainly you get a good return uh, for that. I, I don't think that is going to happen at all. I, I think absolutely we're going to go into next season, we're going to start opening night in 2020 with largely the same roster. Now certainly you have certain players who may not return because they're free agents, Denzel Valentine and Chris Dunn, for instance, so there's probably going to be change there. But uh, honestly, the Chris Dunn situation, I could see the Bulls using the mid-level uh, on Chris Dunn. Or I could see the Bulls potentially matching the offer sheet that Chris Dunn signs as a restricted free agent with another team. Uh, those are all absolutely possibilities in play. And so, you have to. Yeah, we'll, we'll see.
1: I, I think Chris Dunn's earned. Like, how much do you think Chris Dunn should be paid? Like, What, what would you say, I feel comfortable paying him? X amount, if, if matching whatever offer he gets.
0: Uh, so uh, I'll throw a caveat out here that the market is going to dictate what he's worth, and that, that is really hard to predict, uh, given the uh, lack of star power in this free agency class and the lack of teams that have true cap space to, to do that. Uh, however, I'd say. Given Dunn's uh, exceptional ability at defending, which we have absolutely seen the impact it's had on the Bulls' defense with him being out, uh, but also factoring in his lack of scoring and his deficiencies uh, as far as perimeter shooting is concerned, I'd say there's still, I mean, I believe there's truly value in Dunn in this league in the right system with the right role. Um, I am going to ballpark that is going to get an offer from someone in the 8 to $10 million a year range, I would, I, I'd be, I'd be surprised if he doesn't get a three for 30 offer from somebody, um, or four for 40 offer from somebody. Um, this, this off season certainly his injury history is a little bit of a concern. So I could see him maybe getting like a two for 22, uh, from a team, uh, and taking that, um, so I'd be fine with the Bulls matching that. If it gets much more than 10, if it's 12-plus, I think that's a little bit too much, and I think you'd probably have to let him walk if the offer sheet is for $12 million per. Uh, but I, I honestly think that there's a solid chance that he comes back to the Bulls and that they uh, they match a, an offer sheet in the $10 million-a-year range.
1: A 100% agreement with that assessment. And then to wrap this up on the Bulls talk, I know everybody is looking like this, you know, this has been a disaster this season without a doubt, unequivocally, has been a massive disappointment. But I now yeah. that Kobe after the last three games, I think big picture I think hopefully people are kinda of seeing the potential that's here where you have a guy like Kobe White, Zach Levine, two explosive backcourt players paired with a great defender in Wendell Carter Jr. You know, I think Laurie now, to me, is clearly the biggest question mark out of the quote-unquote core, core four, but there's something there. You know, I, I don't know if you still feel that way, or do you feel like, nah, we need to look in another direction and, and, and move some of these guys?
0: No, no, I, I honestly feel that there's hope there. I mean, I, I'm strongly encouraged by what we've seen out of Kobe. I mean, he is putting up numbers that have never been seen in NBA history, really, uh, from a a player off the bench or from a Bulls rookie. I mean, he's putting up just eye-popping stats these last three games. He's got 33, 33, and a 35-point game in a row. That is absolutely fantastic. And I, 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 quite frankly, am surprised that he's that elite scorer. We saw stretches in the first half of the season, in which he put up points in a hurry. But the efficiency that he is scoring at is really what people should be paying attention to. He's not getting 35 points on 35 shots. Like, he is absolutely cooking out there um, when it comes to his efficiency. And, like, that is really, really encouraged. And I I think anybody should look at that and say, you know what, we've got a future star. I I would have thought, from what I saw of Kobe White the first couple months of the season – I thought his his ceiling was a starter on a solid team. Um, I I am I think his his ceiling now is beyond that. I think his ceiling is an all star caliber player. Uh, mm-hmm. And so if you take that yeah. with what we've seen from Zach, and certainly also another reason to be encouraged is what we've seen from Daniel Gafford this year. I mean, for a second round pick, he is absolutely everything and beyond what I think uh, we had hoped for in a player. I mean, he is a, a Joe Keem Noah Tyson Chandler type player out there in terms of uh, early in their careers, and I'm really encouraged by that. And there's, I still have hope for marketing. I mean, this has been a awful inconsistent year for, for Lowry marketing, and, and I'm hoping that he can get back on the court this season and close out the year with like a couple of really really solid uh, weeks of play. You know, like maybe finish the last 15 games of the year and, and be stellar. I'm hopeful for that. I still think he's got all-star potential. There are a lot of concerns though ahead now that I didn't have last October with him, and I'm still really high on Wendell Carter. And so, like, I honestly think in terms of, like, the future and this young roster, there's still, like, a lot of potential there, and I still have hope pegging next season. Like, if you tell me it's the same roster as, uh, next year, just with a, a lottery pick, and maybe a veteran free agent wing because they badly need some depth there, uh, I'm, I'm still going to be pretty hopeful heading
1: into next year. Amen. And a new coach. And I thought Chandler Hutchinson had some really nice moments right before he got hurt. And it's unfortunate he can't stay healthy. But I st- I saw potential in him. They're going to have a number one pick that hopefully will be high and they could hopefully get a, a, a ro- rotation player out of that. I mean, it's not as dark as it looks right now. You know, a lot of this has yeah, to do the, with...
0: the hush thing, I feel like you're absolutely right. Like, we were seeing, like, these flashes... Out of Hutchinson, that look great, but like he just cannot stay on the floor, and that's like that's really, really concerning to me. Is just he can't stay on the floor. Um, but you know, if he can end up like you, can, the thing is, when you've got a guy who's injury prone, you mean you can't count on him uh, as a piece next season. All right, you can you can certainly say you're going to be on the team, and we hope you can stay healthy and be part of the rotation, part of the team, but you can't go into the season counting on him to be a big part of what you're doing just because you can't you can't rely on him to stay healthy at least what we've seen so far in two seasons great
1: well now that we're done with bulls talk let's move on to the 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 main event which uh, i i'm so excited to hear your top 10 scenes in star wars history star wars for you and for me uh is one of you know been a major influence in my life it's been a major influence i think on your life it's a
0: yeah
1: been kind of like a you know background music for our lives as we grew up with it and we continue as we get older continue to get blessed with great works of uh works from lucasfilm and and the team at disney i love the last movie i know uh, our good friend mark k from australia didn't uh again another bad take on his part but let's let's get into your top 10 when are we gonna start out with the five honorable mention first is that correct
0: yeah so let's let's uh, qualify this just so everybody's aware we're going uh, my top 10 slash favorite scenes from the Star Wars films so that this does not include Clone Wars Star Wars rebels Mandalorian this is only the films only uh, and if we were to get into the discussion of top 10 of all Star Wars uh visual media you know tv and uh... certainly the films this list looks very different uh... i've got a a scene from the clone wars which is probably my top in my top three that we're not going to discuss for this but we'll have to go over that at a different point so again this is my top ten scenes from the films only and so these uh... let's start with honorable mentions the honorable mentions are not in any specific order so don't don't read them as being fifteen through eleven um... This is kind of random order for this. So honorable mentions scenes that I love that are not in my top ten. Number one is in the Phantom Menace, the Darth Maul fight versus Obi-Wan in Qui-Gon. Uh, this is absolutely, hands down, the best part of the Phantom Menace film. The music with Duel of the Fates and the, the action, it was at the time the absolute best lightsaber fight we had seen put the film. It was absolutely amazing. Um, it, it's still for many people the most rewatched part of the film, and I can watch it at any time. Uh, I love it, but it, it's not—it's not good enough to make my top ten. If uh, if you see where I'm coming from in that regard, and as we go into my top ten, that'll make more sense. Okay. Uh, also honorable mention is the Rogue One Darth Vader hallway fights the rebel scene uh, it is a quick scene it's, it's about a minute long uh, I audibly gasped in the theater when this scene happened and like the, the instant that you've got this hallway in darkness and Vader's lightsaber is revealed I literally gasped and said yes because I, I wanted that in the film because you had what is certainly the prime Darth Vader at this time and we got uh, certainly several good scenes with him in the film uh, but we didn't get like we we never truly got a complete badass Vader in any of the films we certainly got some pretty good fight scenes with Luke which we'll go over later but the all powerful amazing Vader uh, was shown in that scene and it's it's absolutely fantastic I mean it is it is a great part of that film uh, it was ironically shot very late in production I, I from what I understand it was like last thing they shot and it was done after the fact it wasn't in the original script for Rogue One, and that they shot that scene about two months before the film came out. Uh, but it works. It's amazing, and I'm glad that uh, it kind of is in, you know, basically near the very end of the film. Uh, I, it's definitely worth rewatching.
1: i got to stop you here. I cannot believe that didn't make your top ten. I, I know. Mean, I think that's 90 90- I'd be willing to bet ninety five percent of the people listening to this are going to say that's in their top five. That's in my top five. I think I probably yeah. what, and I,
0: I have it there. What I don't. I don't like, I don't take away from anybody who wants that. That, that could be top five. It can be your number one scene. It is an amazing scene, and I can totally understand why somebody would have it in their top five. And then the reason it's not in my top ten is because there's no emotion in that scene. And then, as we go through my top ten, you'll kind of see a common theme okay. in that regard. So, yes, it's a great scene. I love it. You're absolutely right. Uh, also, honorable mention: Return of the Jedi. Uh, certainly, the first act of the film. Jabba tries to execute Luke Han and Chewie with the Sarlacc pit. It's such an, like it's an iconic scene from from Luke's little salute to R two to signal to throw the uh, lightsaber out to the Boba Fett, Boba Fett wear, and him getting the satellite, yeah. pat, you know, pit. Like, that is, it's such a, the music of that scene by John Williams fits so perfectly, it's fun, it's exciting, it, it ends with, you know, certainly Leia choking out uh, Jabba, which is iconic, uh, it always has been, an uh, amazing scene uh, that Carrie Fisher absolutely loved uh, doing, and it has become such a huge part of her character, and then, you know, you get the heroes. Speeding away as the main barge blows up behind them. It's such, it's also a great scene. It's fun. Awesome. It sets the tone for the entire film. Yep. Uh, also, uh, my fourth honorable mention is in The Last Jedi. It's a, it's a purely conversation driven scene. It's Luke and ghost, uh, Yoda, uh, talking, uh, right after basically Yoda sets fire to the, uh, the Jedi tree there on ahch Um and there's just this, like, I just love the scene specifically for the line that's thrown out, which is, we are what they grow beyond. And, you know, they're talking about the Jedi Order, and they're talking about uh, Luke closing himself off in the Force and then reopening that wound and being part of the Force again, and then about the future of Ray. And it's just, like, it's such an amazing scene, and I just love, like, just love, like, luke and yoda in that moment and that that line of we are what they grow beyond is just like it's it's an amazing line it's a perfect line and in that context it's great so i I absolutely love that scene Mm. uh my uh, final honorable mention is from revenge of the sith and it's the opera scene and a lot of people have this in their top 10 and again uh much like the luke and yoda scene it is purely a dialogue driven scene so this is i think about midway through the film in which uh, Chancellor Palpatine is at this uh, really elaborate opera that's got uh, you know some floating bubble type uh, performances. The music is like really out there, but yet it really works. Uh, and he's talking with Anakin, and they're essentially that is the moment that Palpatine turns Anakin to the dark side because Anakin is kind of expressing his fears of Padme. He's expressing his fears of losing the people that he loves. And Palpatine, being a complete Sith Lord at the time, tells the story about Darth Plagueis the Wise, who is actually Palpatine's teacher in the Sith. Uh, Palpatine ends up killing him and actually tells the story of how, without saying it was he, tells the story of him killing Darth Plagueis and how he was taught the ability to save the ones he loves from death, and this, the iconic line of Anakin, how can one learn this power, After can, can one learn this power, and Palpatine responds, not from a Jedi. Yeah. So yeah. it's just a it's this amazing scene, and it is the moment you can see Anakin, of which there are many things that lead up to it, I mean many things that lead up to Anakin turning to the dark side, but that is essentially the moment that Palpatine wins. Yep. At that time, it's a great scene. So that, that's in my honorable mention. So that's that's my five honorable mentions, all of which I love, but none of which are in my top ten. Okay. All, all right. So you good. ready? We'll go. We'll go with number yes. ten. Let's or do go, you have let's any go questions go about 10 the honorable to one.
1: I, I, I I loved. I'm so you you've named at least uh, the Sarlacc pit is definitely in my top three. I think it's probably three. Oh wow, wow! That's a, top, top
0: three for you. Yeah, I, I'm
1: shocked. And then you had the Vader scene, which. From Rogue One is, to me, like, I judge this, and I, I'd like to, before we get in your top ten, I just want to hear, like, my my, my whole direction's the mark when I was talking about this was close your eyes, reach out with the Force, you know, and what comes in your head? What are the first scenes that come in your head when you say Star Wars? I think those are, like, what should be your best scenes. How did you come, arrive at the list? Like, was that your process? How did you define it?
0: So, I... Kind, I came, number one is what scenes resonate with me. Like, what scenes, when I think of Star Wars, mean the most to me personally? Yeah. So that was, like, the number one criteria. Number two criteria was, like, rewatchable, right? Like, yeah. what, what do I consider? Like, what scenes would I skip to if I could only watch five minutes of a film or if I could only watch ten minutes of a film? Like, what scenes would I be like, okay, I've got to watch this scene, right? I asked yeah. myself... I could only watch five minutes of Rogue One. What scene am I watching? What five minute scene? And so that kind of that kind of was part of my process. And also, it was it really came down to what scenes kind of elicit that that Star Wars feeling to me. And the, the amazing thing about Star Wars because it stretches over forty years in media. It, it's not only the films. It's, it's the shows. It's the books. It's the comics. I mean, there's a lot of things. Like it can mean different things to different people and that's the beauty of Star Wars and like you, know, you used to kind of started the show with you know what Star Wars means to certain people and the legacy of it you know it, it because of the four decades of Star Wars is, is we've seen like yourself and like myself the fans who literally were alive uh, and saw the original trilogy in theaters is that we're now sharing Star Wars with our children yeah. and we're seeing what resonates with them and what they like and so like that's part of like the shared history and you kind of pass it on to another Generation and that's like that's literally like the story of Star Wars, right? And so like that that is also kind of what's important to me So to, to basically I think the number one criteria for me is what resonated with me And what do I think of when I think of this is pure Star Wars?
1: Great stuff. Okay number 10
0: So number 10 is the uh, revenge of the Sith it's the opening scene, which is the Battle of course. And what's kind of like funny about when I did my list is I actually have three scenes from Revenge of the Sith in my top 10. Uh, mm. Even though overall, I wouldn't put Revenge of the Sith in my top five of Star Wars films. Like I, I think start to finish, it has some flaws. It is by far, by far the best of the prequel films. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's not like I wouldn't say oh it's my absolutely favorite Star Wars film or even in my top five of Star Wars films. However, there are three scenes in that film and we you even saw I had the opera scene as an honorable mention. So like there are four of my top fifteen Star Wars scenes of all time from the films comes from this film. Uh so number ten is the opening scene. The reason I love it is that it's starts the film immediately and at like a breakneck speed. It was It's almost like a Bond film opening with how they started uh, the battle, of course. And, and this, uh, for anyone that may be not be a little fuzzy with to remember, it basically starts with Anakin and Obi-Wan in the respective starfighters uh, trying to rescue Chancellor Palpatine from General Grievous And from Count Dooku, Uh, they have, they've done this, uh, you know, huge plot where they've kidnapped Palpatine from the Jedi slash, uh, you know, core world's home world. Of course And the film starts with the opening crawl and then gets right into it with the action. It is the CGI, even though the film came out in 2005, the CGI absolutely still stands out today, uh, 15 years later. Uh, It is fun. There is so much happening in the background. Of this, I mean, we're talking about uh, like dozens and dozens of capital ships in the background uh, fighting it out. Uh, it's got the great scene with the buzz droids, and then that that scene for me basically ends with they get aboard the uh, the capital ship of Grievous, and so like that scene, it's just it's it's such a great scene. It's worth the rewatch. It's fun. It sets the tone for the whole film, and you get that it's the, really the last time that. Anakin and Obi-Wan are true, like, brothers in this film. Um, so that's my number ten.
1: And there's also, I mean, the precursor of him, you know, going to the dark side where he executes him, you know, basically.
0: Yes, yes. So you get I wouldn't consider that part of the opening scene, but absolutely you're right when basically Anakin has defeated Count Dooku. He's absolutely, he literally cut off both his hands. He completely has him defeated. The the a Jedi, in this case, would... Bring Count Dooku to the Jedi Temple, to be stand trial, be convicted, um, but, uh, through Palpatine's, uh, convincing him is do it. You know, he's got that iconic line, do it. Yeah. And that, uh, Anakin, Anakin, absolutely one of the major steps to the dark side is Anakin executing Count Dooku, uh, right there. And he feels horrible about it immediately. And also a great part of that scene is, Palpatine trying to convince Anakin to leave Obi-Wan behind, because Obi-Wan's been knocked unconscious at this point, and Anakin's no, his fate will be our fate. So, like, Anakin hasn't truly turned at that point, but that is a major step. Uh, Yeah, so I I wouldn't consider once they get inside the capital ship to be part of that scene, I would consider that a new scene, but yeah, certainly that's part of it. Okay. Uh, Number nine, uh, again, from Revenge of the Sith, it's Order 66, and... Mm -hmm. This scene is—it's—it's it's, it's an emotional. The music that John Williams did over the scene is absolutely amazing. Completely conveys the fall of the Jedi Order uh, in a, a matter of three minutes uh, on camera. The entire Jedi Order is essentially wiped out. Um, it, it starts with Palpatine giving the order to the clones for Order sixty-six. Um, and I, I want to make sure everybody is fully aware that the clones didn't like have a choice in this. This wasn't a okay, we knew what Order sixty six was all along, now it's time to turn kill the Jedi, uh that Palpatine told us. There's actually like this chip implanted in their brains when they were created as clones that was hidden in there uh that really not many people knew about, that when Order sixty six, the code word was given, they Absolutely could not stop themselves from killing Jedi. That, that was part of it. And so that's why like Cody, who has fought through hundreds of battles with Oblon, completely turns on Oblon immediately. Nearly kills him. That's why all the other Jedi scenes of them uh, being cut down by the clones happens. It's not like the clones, the, the clones Revered the Jedi, in some cases loved the Jedi when we're talking about like Rex and Ahsoka. Uh, and so the clones had no choice in this. But Order 66, the way that scene was done, the cutting from planet to planet and showing various Jedi and how they died and ending with Yoda getting that just absolutely like punched to the gut that something's gone wrong. And then him, uh, turning on the two clones who are about to execute him on the, in the Wookiee homeworld. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing scene like it just like resonates and everything comes together and it's truly a like powerful moment a pivotal moment in all of Star wars
1: I agree very good scene
0: uh, number eight is in rogue one it's the battle of Scarif space battle uh, this is to me the and this is across all the films uh, this is the best ship to ship space battle we've seen in any of the films uh it was absolutely the moment that the rebel ships come out of hyperspace over Scarif to the unleashing of the hundreds of tie fighters um from the the, the main defense base there it's like it's amazing like it just everything from the y wings trying to bomb the uh the the force shield that, that covers the planet to get inside of Scarif to the x wings uh then using the Hammerhead Corvette to take down two destroyers, two star destroyers at once. Like, I love that scene. Like, it's absolutely, absolutely amazing. And I am like, I'm a sucker for like, starfighter stuff. Uh, the X-Wing series back in the day was absolutely amazing. And so, like, that, that scene, like, it was like, I wanted that. And my, like, huge disappointment out of the Rise of Skywalker was we had, like, this setup of what could have been the best space battle ever put to film. And we didn't get it because we—they the film ran too long, or they didn't have the budget, or they didn't feel it was necessary. And the rise of Skywalker to expand on that, but like Rogue One and that space battle is like amazing. And there are cuts on YouTube, which are just the interplay, intercuts of just the space battle, and it's it's worth a watch. It's absolutely amazing.
1: I agree, hundred percent. I love the scene where it was a destroyer that goes that basically breaks the shield when it collides into the, is is so iconic and awesome. And yeah, Rogue One did a fantastic job because there's so many scenes in that movie that really stick with you.
0: Yeah, so here's number seven is also from Rogue One. And this is going to be probably uh, most people's controversial uh, take. Uh, So this scene I'm about to tell you would probably not be in most people's top 100 of Star Wars films. Um, but I absolutely love it, and I'll explain why in a second here. So, the scene I'm referring to is when Jin is watching Galen Erso's hologram message with Saul Guerrero. Mm. And it's it's about a minute and a half, two minutes long scene, and it's the moment in which Saul, you know, she, he, he welcomes in Jin Erso, who hasn't seen her father in like 15 years, right? Um, and he says, I've got a message for you, and he plays this message from Galen Erso, and the, the acting by Felicity Jones in that moment is, quite frankly, for me, the best acting of any scene in all of Star Wars. Uh, the emotion on her face as not only is she seeing her father for the first time in 15 years, she, her father is professing his love for her, that everything he's done has been for her. Not only do you get that in the scene, but you also get the absolutely reason for the entire film, which is that he has hidden a flaw in the Death Star that he has put in the engineering and the design of the Death Star. He's put a huge flaw in there, specifically so the Rebels can exploit, so they can destroy the Death Star. So you're getting all of this in this scene, and it's like, it's an amazing, amazing scene. And it's really, in large part, and mostly due to Felicity's response, as Jen Erso in that moment. And I, I think that scene is just like, it's like there's so much going on there from the love from a parent to a child to, like, retconning, kind of closing the loophole on what was originally one of the huge flaws of A New Hope. So this is going back for ways when we only had the original trilogy. The the huge nitpicky thing about A New Hope was, why would this multi-trillion, billion-dollar space station be designed that would be so easy to destroy that they didn't realize? Yeah. Like, if you, you were a fan of the original trilogy, I'm sure you discussed it with your friends, like, why would they do this? Uh, and the answer is, it was done intentionally by the lead designer of the Death Star. And so, like, it's such an amazing, great moment in that time in which, uh, Galen says, uh, that reason and professes his love for Jim. i just like, that scene is, is, was worth a rewatch, and if I could only rewatch, you know, one minute of Rogue One, it's for that scene. Yeah, so that, it's number it's number seven for me. I like I think a lot of people would not if they were thinking about their favorite Star Wars scenes wouldn't put it in their top one hundred, but I I, I, lo- I love that scene. I absolutely love it. Uh number six for me is from Empire Strikes Back and it's essentially the opening segment. It's the Snow Speeder's battle with the Adats on the Battle of Hoth. Uh there probably it's it might be the most iconic non lightsaber action scene yes. in all of the films. It absolutely is the most recreated scene that any kid with any Star Wars toys has ever played with in their minds. Um, like they just had the these absolutely the design of the AdAts themselves. By the way, I am firmly in the camp that they would be called AdAts and not AT-AT. <laughs> Um Because I know I know there's some debate there among what they call. Them. Absol- like I guarantee you that any true rebel or Empire, when they were talking with their friends, called them that ass. Um, and so, like, you just had the design of those ad apps you, you certainly had the snow speeders and the Pro Cables, right? And so, like, that moment is the most recreated uh, moment in video game history when it comes to Star Wars video games. It's also the most recreated moment that any kid playing the Star Wars toys ever had. Like, it's it's an amazing moment. Like, it's, it's a spectacle that, quite frankly, when the film came out... That no one had ever really seen before. Um, and it just, it's, it's iconic to Star Wars. Because Star Wars is not just about the Jedi, it's not just about lightsabers, it's, it's also about like the heart and soul of things, and it's about like awesome vehicles and battles too, right? So, yeah. uh, the, the Battle of Hoth, specifically the Snow Speeders and that, I, I, love. It's such an amazing scene.
1: Agreed. Great call.
0: Alright, now top, now top for my top, top five. Uh number 5 is from the last jedi it's oh. the throne room scene with Kylo Ren and Rey. Uh and this, this in my mind the scene starts uh the the instant that uh, Kylo brings Rey into the throne room to, to meet Snoke uh and you know certainly it culminates with uh Kylo uh, executing Snoke with Rey's lightsaber Snoke has no idea it's coming. Uh, and then certainly the immediately aftermath when Ray and Kylo work together to, uh, to defeat Snoke's, uh, guards, elite guards. Um, that scene, like it's just, it's just amazing. It's like the action lightsaber sequences in that moment when I mean, you've got two verse ten, uh, two verse twelve, however many it is, it's absolutely fantastic. The, the moments that Ryan Johnson decides to slow it down when he needs to, and go real time when it needs to is perfect. The the way some of those uh, those troopers die is absolutely fantastic, including when um, you get the throw of the lightsaber and then Kylo executes the one in the head with raised lightsaber. Like it's just like it's such a it's such a great scene and like I I just love it. Like when I I I've watched it the first time in the theater and certainly many times afterwards. Like I keep coming back to that scene. Uh, And then you've got the heartbreak of Ray thinking that Kylo has turned to the light side and has killed Snoke out of some sense of right and defeating the First Order. And then you've got the, no, I I did it because I want to be in charge and I'm tired of this guy bossing me around. uh, It's it's a great scene. I absolutely love it.
1: Yeah. I loved it. You know, in retrospect on that scene specifically, because it was to me – well, it's without a doubt the best scene in that movie. Uh, it, 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 I, I watch it again on rewatch, and the things I liked about it the fighting. It's the, the, uh, the like, how the curtain catches on fire, and everything yeah, is it, it's, there's like little things in that scene that are really well done uh, that are really cool. On a, on a rewatch yeah,
0: including like one of those guards gets like shredded yes. to death and <laughs> yeah. getting knocked into <laughs> something who knows <laughs> exactly. um, no you're absolutely right like it's, it's the little things in that scene that really really make it um, well done and they, they spent from what I understand like months rehearsing uh, that fight and it, it shows uh, number four for me is my only favorite scene from the Rise of Skywalker uh, and so spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen Rise of Skywalker yet but it's, it's the Ray. Be With Me, Voices of the Jedi scene. Uh, and so you've got essentially the moment at the end in which all looks lost. Palpatine is seemingly won again, and, and Ray makes a final desperate plea for the Jedi to be with her and give her strength. And then you get this absolutely amazing audio voices montage of about a dozen different Jedi um, telling her that with her you know and like literally we have Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan we've got um Mace we've got Samuel Jackson as Mace Windu in that scene we've got uh you know Ashley Eckstein as Ahsoka Tano in that scene like it's like it's absolutely amazing and like like it just it's it's so perfect and so well done that they at that moment They decide to be with her and give her strength that, and then certainly it follows with her taking not only Luke's lightsaber, but Leia's lightsaber together to kill Palpatine essentially with his own Force Lightning. Like that, that scene is just, like, it's, it's amazing and like I love it and I I can't wait to watch it again, uh, you know, really soon when the, when the film comes out on uh, Blu-ray and then I get to watch it uh, again. But that, that scene, like, it's just, like, the, the job that Daisy really did in that moment and the, the audio montage is just, it's perfect. Like, I love it.
1: Great. Great call.
0: All right, now time for the top three. Uh, number three, Revenge of the Sith. It's Anakin versus Obi-Wan. Um, mm. And it, it's not the fight. So, like, the, the the lightsaber battle between the two of them is, is fantastic. There's a lot going on with them jumping around and going from location uh, to location, uh, Mustafar, but what I love about the scene is the end and the emotion that is conveyed between the two of them when Obi-Wan has, has essentially won and knows he's won, and Anakin in his arrogance and in his accepting of the Sith, uh, won't accept defeats, right? And so you've got this amazing moment in which Obi Wan realizes his best friend, his brother, has completely turned to the dark side, and and not only turned to the dark side, has massacred children at the Jedi Temple, has, has it, like gravely injured Padme, uh, choking her, and is completely gone. And like you've got this emotion of Obi Wan saying, "You are my brother. You were you were supposed to." And the Sith, not like become one of them. And it's like this amazing scene. And then you on the on the flip side, Hayden Christensen gets a like it's a bad rap as an actor. He was he was really good for a lot of Revenge of the Sith, and he was damn right like, perfect in this yeah. scene because you get like you get the hatred out of him. Like he he was he was his brother, and like you get this, I hate you. And like from my point of view, it's the Jedi who are evil, right? And so like like you truly buy into him. Misguided as he is, you completely buy into him thinking that the only way to save Padme is to go to the dark side and, like, turn to the Sith and become an apprentice of Palpatine. And so, like, you've got this this back and forth where, like, Obi-Wan doesn't want to do it, but he has to. And you've got the kind of meme um, version of the I have the high ground, don't try it. And and Anakin does, and Obi-Wan chops off uh, most of his limbs and uh even like essentially dying on that that rock beach in mustafar anakin screams out i hate you like he's still holding on to that fury and holding on to that hate uh that scene is absolutely amazing it's to me it's not because of the lightsaber battle it's because of the the true fall and how far anakin fell in that moment
1: number yeah two. uh
0: number number 2 for me uh back to empire strikes back is the Luke and Vader fight and the reveal of no, I am your father. Um, this scene is absolutely iconic because of the shock that anyone who had uh, you know not seen Star Wars before or even today has not seen Star Wars and they go through that scene like the, the shock of that scene uh, is like amazing. It's like a, a major twist that will be like really hard to duplicate in any any way in really any film again. And you also had the emotion of Luke just can't believe it. And then he comes you can see on Mark Hamill's face and Luke's face the the acceptance that search your feelings, you know it to be true. Um, it's a it's a great fight in itself, uh even though Vader essentially is taking it easy on Luke the entire time. Uh, because he wants to turn into the dark side, and, and then it's the acceptance by Luke that you are my father, that, that Anakin wasn't killed by Darth Vader, Anakin became Darth Vader. Uh, and so that, that to me, is my, is my second favorite Star Wars scene.
1: And I think this this scene, specifically, kind of touches on the whole meaning of Star Wars, which, when you get down to it, is about identity. And... really the meaning of life like where where are you in this grand scheme what is your part to play in this grand you know grand scheme of life and like i think anybody whose priorities are in order if you ask if if you go up to somebody ask them who are you like what makes you you if your priorities are in order and you have children you should be i'm a dad or a mom like that should be one or two Know, or if you have, if you're a ch- if you're if you have a father, I'm, I'm also a son to a father. So it's kind of like the most important thing, or one of the most important things in your life. Family is family, family, exactly. And 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 I think that's what makes and that theme runs throughout all nine films, especially in the ninth one. Of you know what, what is your identity? What makes your identity? Who your parents are? Or you know what what really defines that? It's just such yeah, a great horror. scene.
0: Yeah, you know, or in the case of Ray, choosing your identity and not being defined from who your grandfather was. Right. Um, right, you're you're absolutely right. And so, like to to get to my number one scene, it, it kind of is along the same lines. And this, to me, is the entire essence of Star Wars, and it it is. I don't think it will ever be topped. It's Return of the Jedi it's, it's Vader saving Luke from Palpatine and and that entire scene. And and it's not just about that moment in which Vader is seeing his son essentially being killed, executed by Palpatine and then deciding I'm not going to let that happen and killing Palpatine himself. It's also the moment in which Luke is enraged and like, uh, absolutely no mistake about it, Luke tapped into the dark side to defeat Vader yes. at that yes. moment, right? And then you get the moment, like, that's what Palpatine wanted, that's absolutely what Palpatine wanted, and Luke deciding, I'm not going to become another version of my father, seeing his father's hand, it's just like his hand, it's it's, it's an android hand, it's part metal, and throwing his lightsaber yeah. yeah. in that moment, deciding that, I am a Jedi, I'm not gonna turn the dark side, I'm not gonna do what you what my father did. I'm not going to do that. Like that that scene and then Vader saving him is the absolute essence of what is true Star Wars. And that is like it's about being redeemed. It's about how there is light in all of us and there is hope in all of us. And in that moment we can make our own decisions about what to do when faced with a really difficult decision. You can make the right decision. And so in that moment, that is Luke turning to the light side, like understanding what Obi-Wan taught him, understanding what Yoda, Yoda taught him. And that, that, that to me is the pinnacle of what Star Wars is.
1: Did you listen to the last Bulls HQ I did with Mark I
0: I haven't yet. I can't wait to do it because I know you touched upon. I, that, uh, you named
1: my number Yoda one scene. You named my number one scene. It's a little bit different spot. Like to me, I think, the, the the greatest scene in all the Star Wars movies begins where Luke is hiding. And I will not fight you, and then he says, "Sister, you have a twin yeah. sister." I think it starts right there where he goes. Well, if she will, if you will, not turn to the dark side. Perhaps she will, which is like you know, incredible to use that against. And he, and he comes out, and you're right. He taps into the dark side. He lets the the anger. Get the better of him and the hate, and he almost executes his own father. And then Palpatine comes on laughing. You're right; it's all wrapped up in there where he lets it go. He lets he throws down his lightsaber. I'm a Jedi. That is the essence of it, right there. It's the greatest.
0: Yeah, you're right because like <laughs> with that one line, "I will turn your sister," uh, that like is what gets to Luke. Right? Like you can do what you want to me, but you absolutely will not get to Leia. And that like he taps into the dark side, but then decides not to completely follow through with it and, and kill his father. And yes, 100%. That, that's essentially the same scene. That's part of it. Um, and that, that is my favorite moment from all of Star Wars films.
1: And that is a home run list, Kevin. I love it, man. I, I cannot wait to hear people's feedback on your list, your top ten. Everybody, please email me what you consider to be the best moment. Uh, but I, I'm 100% in agreement with Kevin. That is my number one scene also. And I think... For that reason, the more I watch the Star Wars movies, I, I still think Return of the Jedi, despite the Ewoks, is the best film for all that reason with the, with the uh, Palpatine.
0: So, like, it's a little funny. Side here. I asked my twin sons, they were seven. I asked them what their favorite film, what their favorite moment from any Star Wars film was. Their response was from Return of the Jedi when the Ewoks steals the speeder bike from the... <laughs> Cal Trippers. <laughs> so so from a seven year old's perspective it's the moment where the scooter bike gets thrown by Neewon so like that, that's coming everybody the fandom is different every every fan has got a different favorite scene. so if you're a seven year old that's probably your favorite scene
1: I want to throw one more question out to you because I thought this yeah. scene was one of the best scenes in any Star Wars movie was in the Rise of Skywalker the scene with Han and, uh, and Kylo Ren yes
0: it's amazing yes absolutely right. i love that a, scene i thought it was great the shot for shot creation from the force awakens right like it's yes. essentially the same dialogue the same way it's shot uh even like in the, the sense of the, the back and forth and they're on a bridge in force awakens they're on this little narrow strip of the death star uh over in the ocean um absolutely like there is something special about that scene i loved love that scene and by the way for anyone who's like, was that a Force ghost? No, it was not. It was not Han. as a Force ghost. No way. It was Kylo's memory. He was essentially playing back the moment in which he truly turned and stayed with the dark side in the way he wanted
1: to. Is that true? I thought it was yep. uh, Leia manipulating. Okay, maybe I'm wrong on this. Then, so I, did he state that? That's what it was.
0: <laughs> so you're, you're right about it was Leia like giving him like giving light into Ben at that moment, giving strength into Ben at that moment. But it was Ben replaying the worst moment of his entire life and the decision that essentially he went one way or the other and could have gone the way. It's the moment he's regretted ever since that film. And he's just replaying that exact scene in his head again. And he's then decided to make the right choice.
1: Yeah. He repeats the exact same it, words. I don't think I'm strong enough to do it. I know what I need to yep. do. Love, love that scene. I thought it that's one that will stick with me forever. Kevin, I yep. mean I, I can't thank you enough for this. This was so enjoyable to hear your top ten lists. I think some of them might may be controversial, but you definitely hit a homer run the first one and on your number one. I for, I'm good.
0: By the way, after the podcast comes out, I'm probably gonna have to do do a Jack Silverstein treat. Thread, in which yeah. I have my top ten with the links with the video on Ben. So. It sounds great. Cool. I look forward. See if to I can it. make that happen. All right,
1: man. Sounds great. Take it easy, brother. Have a great night, Kevin. Thank you again, man. Thank
0: you for the time, Fred. Talk to you about talk
1: to you soon.